Hello world, welcome to Political Worldview Podcast, August 31st, 2016, the Peace in Colombia, Burkini Wars in France edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England, joined as usual by my two co-hosts, Cristalia Kinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow, and Scott Lucas, Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary Site EA Worldviews. Our two topics this week. First, the longest war in the Americas ends, Hopefully, with a peace agreement in Colombia, we inspect and reflect. Second, as the anti-religious police descend on French beaches to force women out of their bikinis, we ponder where secular liberalism loops back on itself to become intolerance. On August 24th, reports emerged that after four years of talks in Havana, agreement had finally been reached between the government of Colombia and the leftist guerrillas of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or FARC, to give them their common name. On the 29th, this was made real with the declaration of a permanent cessation of hostilities by the guerrillas' commander. This conflict raged for 52 years. The guerrillas have achieved some promises of government investment in rural areas in exchange for the surrender of their weapons, but have withdrawn from the fight some way short of achieving the Marxist revolution that they originally sought. On the upside for them, it seems unlikely that any but the most egregious criminals will be punished for offences carried out during the the conflict. Uh, that is likely to result in significant resistance to the deal's final approval uh, in a referendum on October the 2nd, though. President Juan Manuel Santos will be trying hard to sell the deal in the run-up to that. Strident in opposition will be his predecessor Alvaro Uribe, a hardliner who pounded the guerrillas militarily while in office, and who has been a vocal critic of peace on what he thinks are unduly lenient terms. A complicating factor in the background to remind ourselves of all this will be the fact that the FARC has status as a major player in the international drugs trade, a lucrative sideline that some came to see as their primary business in later years of the war. So, Cristala, um, this seems like it it must surely be a good thing. Um, I remember when I was an undergraduate in the 1990s. Yes, listeners, it's true. Today's the day where we reveal our ages. Um, And at that point, in the late 1990s, I remember there was some kind of demilitarized zone that was created in the jungle, and the president, which was Pastrana at the time, I think, was engaged in talks with the guerrillas. And at that point, everyone thought, wow, this has been going on a really long time. It's time to wrap this up. Yet here we are, um, a collapse of those talks, and the best part of 20 years later, only reaching some kind of conclusion. Um, so this one really ran and ran, even by the standards of uh, of the region. What, why is it ending now? Did, did everyone just get tired? <laughs> I think it's a combination of factors. Most important is that over the last four to six years, actually, this has been an ongoing commitment by the two sides, by FARC and the and Santos, especially for the last six years, has really stamped his name on this um, peace effort. So there's been a whole bunch of quiet work being done over the last, especially four years, to get us to this point. So, so it's been a combination of factors of engagement, um, people staking their political reputation of it, and real willingness over time to, 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 to find common ground. I think Colombia, what's happening is important 
across a number of kind of areas. It's it's important for the country, no doubt at all, because people are fatigued and um, this, I mean, 52 years, you can't even begin to describe the landscape of destruction, but also the interweaving of violence, right, that you need to start unpicking. And, and there must be like only a small minority of the population at this point must have been uh, uh, alive without this conflict going on in the in the country. Yeah, it's become I mean it's part of the it's part of the the the, the country's memory and the country's way of living and that's what happens in conflict contexts. You it, it, you get passed it's intergenerational conflict gets passed on, but also between neighbors and injustice kind of takes different shapes and the lines between victim and perpetrator sometimes are not so clear. And so the effort to clean up, for want of a better term, something like this takes a long, long time. So the peace agreement, and if you think of it as four years of intense negotiations, the peace agreement isn't the end. It's the beginning of something that's really, really hard from now. Um, The second reason that this is important is that the referendum itself um, c- comes on top of a really polarised country. So having just gone through a Brexit uh, referendum, we know in the UK how divisive referendums can be. So you uh, superimpose that over the top of a conflict that is that has really divided a country over multiple generations. And you see that this, that October the 2nd, isn't a flashpoint, but I would characterize it as a as a potential rupture. Um, and so the media is frenetic um, on on all sides, but there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of anti peace deal uh, propaganda, um, and the stakes are very very high. And it's not just FARC who control the the drug trade; it's also members of political elites, including allegedly the uh, leader of the opposition, the, the ex-president, who is the person who is... Uh, That's a pretty big allegedly. <laughs> I, think, I think we need to badge there, that there are with some a, ti- There are some the, ties. There, the, let's uh, say there, is, the alleg- there are some accusations. The allegation around. klaxon just went on in the background <laughs> there. But, I, I, do, so, but I, I do know that he was, uh, uh, this is Mr. Uribe, was a very... Uh, he came in in the aftermath of the breakdown of that yeah. previous round of talks that yeah. we talked about before. Yeah. He through the armed forces with renewed vigor at the guerrillas. Uh, some would say, therefore, making them uh, malleable to the peace talks uh, in, in a second round. But he also had a series of associations with hardline right-wing forces, including, to some extent, paramilitary right-wing yep. forces yeah. uh, that people think complicate his relationship now with any peace deal, right? It is true. And Adam, you have done a lovely job of just uh, cushioning, cushioning <laughs> what I've said. Um, so it's not, it, it's not clean from, from many angles. Um, and people are polarizing in all kind of, in, in all segments. But I guess the thing, the, the thing, if we reflect from this distance um, about, the, about the Colombian peace deal, and the way it's been negotiated is that it's absolutely, absolutely um, field setting. It's 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 field defining actually in terms of peace negotiations. The way that it's been conducted, the way that the Colombians have owned this, the way that they've asked for help from outside parties but led it themselves. Um, 
many of the peace agreements, the stuff on transitional justice, the the proposals around moving revenue from drug trade to other agricultural areas, refugee um, um, resettlement, reparations. These are really, really tricky topics and these are the things that derail peace agreements almost every time. And in the last set of negotiations that you talked about, they weren't dealt with at all. So they've they've tackled the really hard stuff and they've come up with some interesting proposals. And so people from outside are watching this and really admiring the way that the Colombian peace process has moved forward. So in many regards, from the outside, it's an excellent example of how you engage stakeholders when you negotiate peace agreements and also how you bring survivors and victims into the peace negotiation process. Mm. So if you look at other case, uh, other cases of conflict, often the peace agreement is like Colombia, is um, agreed behind closed doors for very obvious reasons. You don't want spoilers, you don't want media leaks and so on and so forth. But this has been, this has been a combination of agreements behind closed doors and a very long listening process where the government has gone around the country talking to people about what they fear, what they need, what they want, and then infusing that into the negotiating process itself. So it's interesting. Because one of the toughest parts about, uh, about any deal like this, whatever the, the challenges of uh, new political arrangements and the, the, the agreements that have to be reached to bring them about may be, is that people have done some dark stuff, yep. usually... Uh, on both sides of the transaction by by the end of any civil war of any kind of length. And inevitably, some part of the arrangement to cease hostilities will involve people skating, essentially, yeah. who've done stuff that under different circumstances might have justified lifelong prison sentences. So getting... Getting enough people, because all people's probably out of the question, to the place where they're willing to tolerate that as the price of bringing the the whole conflict to an end is possibly the corner polit- the cornerstone of the political challenge, right? Yeah, and it helps, I think, that the Colombian economy is going well, and that many people see this as an opportunity to to strengthen further the economy. So there's a, an idea that it could be a deepening and spreading of wealth. Um, which is important. I think the thing that hangs over this, while the US has been extremely supportive financially and in terms of the substance of this process, I think there are still some extradition um, things hanging over the heads of some of the people who might be a little bit toey about about what amnesty agreements might um, Mm. entail. Which which can be a useful... um a, a, a useful thing because yeah. if if you want to make sure that the deal sticks, yeah. then having people who are to some degree vulnerable, uh, if it doesn't stick, to uh, a set of outside powers coming in and saying, "Well, you know, we never gave you amnesty for this. We were yeah. just kind of letting it slide because you seemed like you were on the side of the angels." Now, um, that can be a bit of leverage that comes in handy. Yep, no, I agree. And I think the the other thing about this, the referendum is not a clear yes. People are not, people in Colombia, there's more support outside of the country than there is, or clearer support outside of the country than there is within the country. The polls are much more divided in Colombia. But I think that a no to peace um, would be disastrous um, because, because uh, for many reasons, but one thing that it does is it legitimises FARC's 
older rhetoric, which was that the only way uh, to protest the closed political system was with guns, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it kind of throws back to a whole legacy that, that FARC has and that parts of FARC within have been remodeling. If I want to take the glass half full with where we are, it's that we've gotten beyond the past, I think, in a way because of changes in context. Um, I think, to give you a couple of examples, I think one is that when we look back on it, I think the U.S. will probably be condemned, quite rightly, for a disastrous approach under the Bush administration with Plan Columbia, where they just pumped in money to the Uribe government, just basically to to beat people over the head, right? Mm. To try to crush FARC militarily. And of course, what happened is, is a lot of that money not only went to the supposed, quote, counterterrorism efforts, which is the label given to it, since FARC was obviously terrorist. It was actually, that money was diverted into various groups who used it to line their pockets and then carry out their own form of justice against perceived rivals. Um, in that context, the U.S. is approaching is a far different approach now under President Obama. So I think it's committed $450 million uh, to try to support the reconciliation effort, for example, through development projects, for example, through furthering dialogue. Uh, it's, so that's one change. I think another change, which is probably quite interesting, uh, without making too many presumptions, but I suspect that if you're in Colombia, you look at certain neighboring countries and neighboring projects, and you look at where they've gone, um, you look at Cuba, for example, which is clearly going through transition. So no longer is it the old Marxist dream of, you know, of Castro's revolution. That's being modified. That's being changed even as we speak with various forms of reconciliations, although a lot of still internal tensions that go on. But if you look next door at Venezuela and you look at what's happened to the Chavista revolution, I mean, do you really want to pursue that type of utopia, which has led to uh, it's, it's the it's got the worst inflation rate, and it's got the worst growth rate in the world now. Mm -hmm. Now, whether or not that's the fault of the Chavista approach or external forces, we can debate it. But I doubt Colombia wants to go that way economically. So the idea of FARC leading the country in any respect, or even part of the country down the net road, that's gone. So that change in regional context and the American context is there. But then it gets to the question as to whether that half-full glass is going to be emptied. And I think Cristal has spoken very positively and quite rightly about an approach by the Santosh government, by other groups, um, both uh, within the government but also non-government groups, and indeed within some elements of FARC, which has gotten us to this point. And this is a new approach in many ways, that it's tried to incorporate rather than simply be a small group, range of groups at the top which dictate coming down. But for me, the fly in the ointment, there's, well, <laughs> the double fly in the ointment, there's two linked things here. The first is your old bugbear, Adam, of referenda, mm -hmm. right? You know, and this is going to be handed to a plebiscite. And no matter how much you try to include people into this, to have people go to the polls on an extremely complex agreement, dealing with more than 50 years of wounds, which have been inflicted by various sides, that's, you know, people may vote on terms of memory and on terms of the idea of we can never have a reconciliation with these people that we hate on the other side. 
Yeah, there's also a fear of a throwback to a communist kind of regime. Right. So the idea, the the lost ideal that Adam is talking about, or the no longer fitting the spectre, mm. maybe. Yep. Because you saw, I mean, in order to keep a war going for 52 years, you've had to sell people pretty hard on a message that the status quo is totally unacceptable and that it's worth fighting and dying to do X, Y, and right. Z. And that has Which to go not, away now. Yeah, I mean, and that's also not so hard to do if the, if the, if the government that's upholding the status quo is, is, is torturing, disappearing people. Mm. And I think, I mean, I think the idea of the communist government, I think that is a specter, and people do vote on specters. But I think linked to this question of the referendum probably is the second, as it were, perceived fly in the ointment, and that is, is Uribe. I mean, you have yeah. the leader of the opposition who is vehemently against this agreement, who is tied to a number of elites yeah. in Colombia who will try to mobilize against this agreement. Who are already, because he, yeah. I mean, just today, yesterday, he submitted a, um, a document protesting the referendum with a million signatures. Mm. Yeah. So they're galvanized. Yeah. And I don't know if he still does, but certainly a while after he left office, he was living in some kind of armed compound yeah. in the city in the city center of the capital with a, a you know, a variety of police officers, etc., basically yeah. protecting him. So he has a kind of weird quasi-state status yeah. in his capacity as an ex-president, and a lot of people within the state apparatus still seem to, to lean into him. Yeah. And let's say what's on the record here. What is on the record, because you referred to it a bit earlier, but just to clarify, is that um, the, his sister-in-law and his niece are both wanted by the U.S. on drugs charges for connections to a Latin American cartel, El Guapo, right, to that cartel. Um, of course, they were never extradited. You know, the U.S. is not going to get them. So that's what you were talking about in terms of that connection. Now, that doesn't mean Arabia himself is implicated directly. But let's just say that this agreement not only has to overcome the, the, the FARC versus the state issue, yeah. it's got to overcome well over more than a half century, going even beyond that, an economy and a politics which has been integrated with a lot of illicit activities, especially the yeah. drug trade. Yeah. And a lot of elites are still tapped into that. Yeah. And I'm not sure, even if you give those folks amnesty, which is what's probably going to happen, whether that, that's, it's definitely not going to swing your rebate. And whether he's got enough power with his connections to be able to swing this plebiscite, that's the thing that worries me at this point. Uribe is a conflict entrepreneur, yeah. and he'll, he'll continue to build that reputation around that. So you're right. I mean, it's exactly that. It's how many people he can galvanize. But before we go to the thing about the referendum, or to, I mean, to transition to referendums, yeah. people will vote on what affects them directly in their day-to-day -day lives. They will vote on, I mean, they will vote on the big picture and safety and the future of their children, but they will also vote on, will my parcel of land be taken away from me and will there be more economic opportunities from the peace agreement than fewer? Will it destabilise this agricultural region? And that is a messy, messy picture, really, in any conflict, but especially here when you've had 52 years plus of this interweaving. Yeah. I think in the end, then, that you've crystallized it well. Out of this messy picture, I just put the question, and that is, logically, I would think that security and economy says that people should support this. But as we have seen in this country recently, arguments for security and economy can be defeated by the specters that can be whipped up. And although Brexit is a long way from this conflict 
completely on it. That question of whether people vote, that evaluation that they make, I absolutely agree with Cristala, and we just have to see in October which way it goes. Just on, on referendums, Scott, I disagree with you. I think that often referendums create a lever that, in, that ensure that politicians don't sit in their uh, closed rooms and not reach out to their populations. It's kind of an, it's a keeping them honest clause. It means that they know they're going to have to create buy-in, which means they're going to work to create buy-in. At the end of the day, people need to be invested in peace agreements so it's so it can work. I absolutely agree with you in principle. I'm just a bit raw in practice from what happened here in June. Yeah. Well, to, to, to clarify my own position, I think when I, uh, I, I've, I've uh, ranted and railed against referendums, I think my specific issue with the Brexit one was that it was basically the government not being in favour of what was proposed and asking for permission to do nothing. Uh, okay, good luck on October the 2nd, Columbia. We will no doubt return at some point, uh, either as a full item or in number of the week, to that subject. Okay, we now have our number of the week round where we take a numeral connected to a story uh, and discuss briefly. Something called the Portland Soft Power Index. One of those, you know, one of those great things where you list, right, to try to get publicity amongst the media because you're a think tank or a consultancy. The UK has slipped from number one to number two in soft power. Uh, soft power we were number one. We were number one. What country is this think tank based in, Scott? I'm suspecting that this is, <laughs> this is not based in, in, let's say, the Eastern Hemisphere. Uh, I'll get to that in just a minute. Uh, the reason why I raise this is not to actually defend this as uh, a go-to index for measuring, for example, a country's influence through its culture, through its economy, through supposedly its political system. Uh, the very notion of soft power is in some ways a nice U.S. ruse to try to maintain the fact that it should lead the world. And indeed, it should be noted that the country which has replaced the U.K. at the top position in the soft power index is none other than the United States of America. Nice work, U.S. Which Go team. <laughs> might come as a surprise to say this is the leading country in soft power if, say, you're, for example, sitting in parts of the Middle East or in Asia or indeed even Latin America, as we've just discussed. But I mentioned this... All I can think of is Ryan Lochte's smiling face throughout your every word now, Scott. Ryan Lochte is a swimmer, by the way, dear listeners, who got Google himself into a spot of bother in Brazil at the Olympics. And uh, bye we'll bye leave you... Bye-bye endorsements. <laughs> yeah. uh, let's just say that Nike are none too pleased. <laughs> I just mentioned this because there's actually a sentence from the description on the Soft Power Index, which I think is a telling one, that even if the index itself, I think, is more of an example of corporate promotion and think tank promotion, uh, or actually two sentences, no other country rivals the UK's diverse range of memberships in the world's most influential organizations. In this context, a risk exists that the UK's considerable soft power would be significantly diminished should it vote to leave the European Union, which of course it has. So at least from the standpoint of the perception of the UK, in that this country which supposedly could clearly navigate between the Commonwealth and the remnants of its empire, and Europe, and the United States, and do so so capably, that that uh, image is continuing to be damaged by the decision that was taken in June to leave the European Union, even if, in my growing opinion, I don't think the UK is actually going to leave the EU. Cristala. My number of the week is 14. That is the age of a young Aboriginal boy, Elijah Doty, who was uh, run over and killed um, 
this week um, by in a in what was a hit and run by white man in a town in West Australia called Kalgoorlie. Elijah was riding a stolen motorbike and the stolen motorbike looks like it was owned by the man. He was left to die on a dirt track by himself and the man who the man who allegedly killed him was has been charged with manslaughter. There's been a series of uh, protests that have turned violent in Kalgoorlie uh, yesterday and today. And what it's done is, I mean, it's done a whole bunch of things, but one, it's, what it's done is just show again how deeply, deeply divided Australia is over this issue of first Aboriginal deaths in custody because that's what simmers in country towns like Kalgoorlie uh, when things like this happened, but also there's this divided, um, racially divided kind of uh, line that Kalgoorlie represents. And so before this boy was killed, there was a whole bunch of social media talking about how Aboriginal people are thieves and scoundrels and uh, and how justice needs to be taken into people's hands and vigilante justice and, and this kind of thing. And he was killed very soon after that. And so there are two narratives going on. One is the the, the multiple generations of uh, police brutality of turning the other way as a as a country to deaths in custody, but also to systemic racism in Australia um, against Indigenous Australians. And then the other is this ongoing narrative, uh, especially within white culture, about how Aboriginals are useless, lay about, drunken, so on and so forth. And so what's happened is that that, um, the protest against his death and the fact that the man was charged with manslaughter turned violent and the focus of much of the media has been about the violence of the protest rather than the... Um, uh, rather than outrage of, of the fact that a 14-year-old boy was was run over and left to die. Um, so my number of the week is 14. It represents uh, a legacy that Australia is not dealing with. My, uh, my number of the week is also two, uh, or possibly one. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, because what I wanted to represent is the number of days that it took Donald Trump to accept an invitation extended to him by the president of Mexico uh, to come and visit. The best I can work out this timeline from the reports, the Mexican president, quote unquote, earlier this week, and it's only Wednesday today, uh, consulted with the U.S. embassy about the prospect of inviting both of the candidates uh, campaigning for president to come visit. Uh, They must have said okay, because he has apparently since done that. And here we are on Wednesday, and Donald Trump is apparently going to be going to Mexico today uh, to meet the the president. So uh, for whatever reason, whether he just had a free day in his schedule or Mexico is somewhere he always wanted to go, Donald Trump does not seem to need a very long lead time uh, to decide to go on a visit like this. I am told that normally it would be, uh, uh, you would measure in the weeks uh, rather than the days that usually uh, a need to elapse before the agreement to carry out such a visit and the execution of such a visit. Quite what either side uh, is expecting to come from this, I genuinely don't know. By the time this, uh, this broadcast, perhaps we will know how it went, but I am at the moment of recording in suspense. 
On August 23rd, photographs emerged of French police in Nice standing over a woman on a beach and forcing her to remove her bikini. For those who don't know, a bikini is a full-body beach garment designed to allow Muslim women to enjoy the seaside while still abiding by the rules about female modesty insisted upon by Islam's more conservative strands. This came after 15 French towns, including Cannes and Nice, banned the garment, insisting it violates the values of public secularism on which they were in no mood to compromise. There was widespread criticism of the images both in France and internationally of the kind you can well imagine might greet the sight of law enforcement demanding a woman strip against her will and very shortly afterwards the ban was successfully challenged and struck down as illegal by France's top court. However, those in favour of the bikini ban were not inclined to fold easily. Nicolas Sarkozy for one, a former president who's hoping to run again for office next year seized upon the issue and promised a constitutional amendment to ban it Nationwide, Numerous other conservative politicians similarly piled on. Two bits of context are probably relevant to this. The first is that this is a fraught time for relations between Islam and the French state, with a series of major terrorist attacks by jihadists having killed hundreds of people in several French cities over the last year and a half. The political right has Islam and Islamism in its crosshairs and is expected to do very well in those elections next year when they happen. The second is that France has a long and tortured history with the status of religion in public life, with a kind of militant secularism having been part of its political culture on and off since the late 18th century that gives it a very different relationship with the wearing of religious symbols in modern times compared with, say, the United States or the UK. Okay, Scott, um, one of your hats these days is as an expert in the Middle East. Uh, You'll have seen these photographs of the, the... looming pair of law enforcement goons standing over this woman and making her take off the outfit that she was wearing. This was like something you'd expect to see from the religious police in, in Iran or Saudi Arabia, wasn't it, rather than, rather than uh, on a beach in Western Europe? Exactly the thought that came to my mind when I saw that image racing across Middle East networks, because that image has done more damage um, in terms of, as we refer to it, soft power, uh, I think not only to France but to the West uh, than 100 or 200 speeches of far-right politicians might do. Uh, let's try to put my anger and sorrow and frustration into a couple of semi-cogent points. The first is you've explained the French context for this uh, in terms of supposedly this divide between the secular and religious, but let's be very specific here. This is one of those knee-jerk measures against a group of people who happen to have a different religious faith from what you might have, which is driven by this fear and it's almost irrational response to the very clear threat that was posed, for example, with the killings in Nice, with the killings in Paris. But rather than coming up with a sensible response, and we've talked about Colombia and a response to more than 50 years of violence. Rather than a sensible response to violence of only a few months ago, we get this measure, which in no way is going to deal with the tensions that have led to that type of violence. They're only going to, in some way, possibly fuel, basically, the cultural underlay that could promote more tensions. Now, I'm not saying the ban on burkinis is going to lead to someone running over a group of people in Nice or blowing up part of Paris. 
what I think is actually a deeper, however, and arguably longer term, more important issue, and that is, is that in a French society, which supposedly is multicultural, which brings together people of different faiths from very different backgrounds, which supposedly prides itself on freedom and equality and liberty for all those people, you actually have an extremely divisive measure, which will continue to have effects. Um, I think the second quick point, I'll go ahead and make three. The second quick point is I'll just simply make the one about political capital, because you mentioned Sarkozy, so let's just call out Sarkozy. While it's been mayors who have implemented these bans for their own various, as it were, narrow-minded reasons or narrow-minded views of political gain, Sarkozy is simply doing it to try to get back to become president, and therefore is pandering to this divisive approach. I don't care about getting all the votes of French people. I'm just going to get that segment of French people that will respond to this notion of we are French and they are not. Because that brings me to the third point. It was summarized by a mayor who was trying to defend the activity, saying he will defy, by the way, the decision of the administrative court, which ruled that one of the towns, in the case of one specific town, that the ban cannot stand. He said, no, no, I'm going to maintain this because I'm defending my way of life. Right? There is no single way of life for a country or a nation. Your way of life, Adam, is different from mine. As you have, I have argued in many different occasions where you have expressed the fact, quite rightly, that I'm being irrational. <laughs> Cristal and I have different views on certain aspects. Connor and I do as well. The point of a society is not to bring together a single way of life. We have different preferences. We have different political, economic, social preferences. But we agree that those preferences coexist, and we work them out. So it's exactly the opposite. You don't have a single way of life. You respect multiple ways of life if you're going to have a decent community. So to bring it all the way back to the start, to your introduction, absolutely. That What is the difference here between the morality piece of uh, police of Iran going into the streets and saying that a woman has to wear proper head covering, hijab, because otherwise the Islamic Republic's way of life will be threatened. What is the difference between that and a couple of policemen? It wasn't a couple, it was five. Sorry, five policemen going after someone in a burkini, or heaven help us, I guess they'd have to go after a nun as well under the criteria they're using regarding inappropriate dress on the beach for religious purposes. Just one afterthought, just to throw this into the audience. I'm struck by the fact that, I think that's my frustration, why is it that we cannot get over ourselves, folks, and I suspect especially men, and have to siphon our politics through our obsessions with women's bodies, right? That in Iran, that if a woman shows her hair, men will supposedly be provoked to lust and the entire structure of the state will collapse. If in this case a woman wears too much clothing, that somehow she has actually not been feminine enough, as the French prime minister explained to us, uh, yesterday. Oh God, this is his by saying that the bizarre sim- tangent about Marianne's bare-breasted representation like, of French nationhood. Uh, by saying that Marianne, because the symbol of France is often represented bare-breasted, France is better represented by big old bouncing naked boobies rather than covering up with layers of clothing. The specific quotes that he used really do need to be uh, to be read to be believed. So I recommend listeners look yeah. them up. Yeah. So a paradox. The end of it. I remember more than 15 years ago in terms of this obsession with women's bodies and trying to enforce our way of life, that in the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., the Attorney General John Ashcroft, who was prone to singing songs, by the way, in the middle of his conferences, insisted that the Statue of Justice, who happened to have one bare breast, be covered up while he was giving his conference. Otherwise, it might be photographed and undermine his moral intent. Here we are 15 years later, 
And we have exactly the opposite, that we have to supposedly uphold women having naked breasts as part of our way of life, because otherwise those darn Islamists are going to come over and overwhelm us with hordes of burkini-clad women on our beaches. Christella, I don't expect I'm going to get a strong counterpoint to Scott's take from you. Uh, what, what do you... Uh, what do you want to? I don't have. How, how do you how do you want to vent on this particular issue? <laughs> I was I was I was venting vicariously through Scott in his last comment. My first response when I saw those men standing and and not just standing over, they were fully armed in flak jackets with you know the whole thing, and it was so visually violent. It was so visually violent. And yeah, the the women in bikinis and the woman in a burkini, which, by the way, was uh, developed by an Australian Muslim woman who wanted to go swimming uh, in her pool, um, and did it. In to, to, I mean, I have friends who 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 wear the hijab and who miss being able to go to the beach, and and for this for them, this is a wonderful a wonderful liberation, and so. I mean, there's just so, I'm so tired of seeing the way that women's bodies are policed constantly. And it doesn't matter whether the rhetoric is one side or the other. It's always around how uh, our modesty should be protected and enforced and how our modesty stands for the, 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 the protection of the state. So I don't have anything cogent to add except that I'm furious and tired more and more these days about these issues. The second thing is that I'm sick. You asked for a diatribe, I'm giving it to you. I'm sick of leaders pandering to the lowest common denominator. You had an empire. You wanted cheap labor. You built the idea of a country that is that is uh, this this utopia of freedom, and that doesn't just mean France, um, but but all of these Western empires, legacies of empires. You built this idea that the country is something that people in the colonies should aspire to coming towards. You bring them in. You make people cheap labor or whatever. And you build this idea of a multi-ethnic modern society. That is the legacy that you've created. At least be coherent with with your with the narrative that you spout about your country and its and its grandness. So when you talk about well, basically when you talk about the fact that you supposedly have a primacy of values, right? Think about how you cheapen yourself each and every day with your actions, which undermine that supposed superiority that you had as you were building your empires, which are now crumbling both outside and within your country. Mm. And a need for leadership. And I think um, the German response, Angela Merkel's response, was was fantastic in this regard when she said, we will not deviate from, from our goal. What was the exact quote? Does, it, does anyone re- remember it? But you're talking about with reference to the, basically the inclusion of refugees yeah. coming in. Absolutely yeah. right. And But the problem is, as we see, is whether Merkel's going to be able to stand to that task because there's other elements in German society that are quite willing to try to kick all those folks out and certainly throw up the walls so that no more get in. Yeah. Mm. So more is required, in my opinion. I think that we need greater leadership. We need to understand that there is, as Scott said, there is going to be tension in multi-ethnic societies. That is a fact. It's mm. about how, as a 
community of leaders you create policies platforms and rhetoric that 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 binds a nation to, uh, binds a country together to produce something that is functional and not something that is so deeply uh, unstable as the uh, as the designated liberal centrist line walker uh, of, of of the three of us let me let me try and do that on this issue i i think it's inevitable i'm going to end up coming down more like where you guys are as you'd probably expect than anybody else but but still let's let's think this let's think this through I mean, there was one response to this that I saw in one of those video clips that LBC Radio periodically put out, where one of the one or other of their talk uh, DJs goes off on one about some topic or group, and uh, then they post it online so everybody can go. Oh, I couldn't agree more and share it, and it was like it, it was a castigation of those who were opposed to the to, to the wearing of the burqa or the bikini etc and the way they chose to characterize it was it's just a piece of cloth it's just a piece of cloth how can you get so infuriated about just a piece of cloth and i remember like starting to listen expecting that i would enjoy the rant uh, and then as it went on not really finding that i was enjoying or that it was that it wasn't chiming with me because i thought it was a really stupid way of going about the argument it very clearly is not just a piece of cloth, either from the point of view of those who wear it, who choose to do so, because it has some kind of great symbolic importance to them, and from the perspective of those who want uh, them to stop wearing it, because they perceive that it has that symbolic value also, uh, and they don't like it. So I suppose the arguments that try to come at it one way or the other from the perspective of trivialization kind of grate on me at a certain point, because it clearly does represent something, and that's heartfelt on both sides, and that's why they're they're annoyed. And I get why people aren't crazy about um, Islamic dress, especially the most conservative kinds of it, like the the burqa, um, which, you know, is because it reflects a lot of deeply embedded cultural assumptions about female modesty that are pretty retrograde. And in some parts of the world, it is not a choice to wear it. It is compulsory. And there is no doubt a non-trivial portion of people who wear it in this country or in France who are not doing so because they're ecstatic about the uh, the symbolism of it, but because they don't feel they have any choice living in their communities uh, and feeling the pressures that they that they do, so all of that being stipulated, um, I think what we have to say those of us who would perhaps like to see f- less burqa wearing in general in the world, you know, society, liberal society, if you find yourself doing the same sorts of things as the people you are criticizing for being intolerant, but telling yourself it's all okay because you're doing it for the right reasons, then you're on the wrong track. And this strikes me as a classic example of that. You know, the basic crime here is trying to enforce on individual women the obligation to do or not do something in terms of their choices of dress to deny them the kind of freedom that 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 all people male or female of any religion ought to have and both as a principle and as a hideous visual as we as we as we saw in this instance what this is creating is 
the complete stripping away of the autonomy and freedom of decision making that is notionally the whole reason for objecting to the existence of this kind of of, of this kind of dress in in the first place. What we should aspire to if we are liberals, and I'll hold my hand up and say I am, is to create a society where no one can be made to wear anything that they don't want to wear and nobody uh, has to not wear something because they feel that they are not uh, that they are not allowed to. And as a coda to that, I guess what I would add is that one of the things that grinds my gears hardest about this issue is the fact that the people who are most strident in saying that these rules are necessary and that they must be enforced um, and who are throwing out talk about repressive patriarchies and the subjugation of women are people who have no interest in that in any other area of life. These are people who see repressive patriarchy nowhere uh, in the regular interactions of our own society or in the operations of other religions. The only reason, the only reason that they're picking this particular issue up to run with now is because it gives them uh, a basis for attacking Muslims and for, uh, for for identifying a wedge issue to try and get as many uh, as many non-Muslim voters as possible uh, to come over to their side and, and feel okay about it because they're doing it off the back of secularism and liberality as opposed to uh, simple prejudice and uh, and whatnot. So uh, the appropriation of arguments about female liberation by people who have no interest in that in any other context for the purposes of st- or propping up their uh, the, their arguments in this instance is one of the most vexing parts of it and I think we should give it the shortest of shrift uh, you know you have to you always have to keep an eye on uh, who you're ending up on the same side as in, in arguments like this uh, I think and this is one point you're ending up on the side of a lot of people whose hearts are in the wrong place I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Poll Worldview. Please do. Please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes and leave us a rating or a comment, which helps others discover the pod. You can also come and like our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Poll Worldview, where you can find links to the show as well as links to articles and other things that we may do. Please also recommend us on social media. That's how people tend to find out that this thing exists. Uh, share it out there. Email it to people. Put a banner outside your window telling people that the podcast exists maybe they should think about listening to it because we want to build the listenership base and if you like it who knows maybe other people will too our participants today have been as always Cristal Yakinthu. where we will find you Cristal if I they want to you can find me on Twitter at at Yakinthu. spell that for no, the, uh, for the enthusiastic listener I've taken a clear decision a clear and rational they decision want, they want to find out to... then they can down well look it up themselves <laughs> and Scott uh, I am at Twitter at Scott Lucas underscore EA or I'm at Political Worldview's partner, the news and analysis website EA Worldview at eaworldview.com or EA underscore Worldview on Twitter. I'm Adam Quinn. You can find me uh, on Twitter at Adam James Quinn if you want, but uh, I'm not a big user of that. More likely you'll find me on Facebook, Adam James, not Adam James, just Adam Quinn, and I'm number 161. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Pulses Department at the University of Birmingham in England. We'll be back soon. We hope you will be too. Bye. Bye. Bye.